name is Wade. I'm the pastor here at IGC, and uh, I'm glad to be here with you guys to bring the word. Um, first off, I want to uh, say that if you guys are not sweating your, if not super hot and sweaty, it's because um, some of the folks that help us out, they arrived here early. They helped us turn the AC on. So I want to thank uh, Anna and Dorothy, Andrew, for uh, showing up early, those who did set up and sound. Um, sorry, I'm still fumbling with my thing here. Awesome. Thanks, June. All right. Um, we're here to listen to the Word of God, and God is going to speak to us through His Word, and uh, we're going to look at His Word in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and um, this is going to be in your bulletin if you're following us online. This is going to be on the live stream as well, or right, this is going to be on your screen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 through 21. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This is the word of God. Let me um, give you a few quotes. And uh, if you're, you might, some of you guys might recognize these quotes. According to the map, we've only gone four inches. Why are you going to the airport? Flying somewhere? No way. We landed on the moon? These are from a movie, by the way. And uh, if you didn't get those quotes, then you might recognize this quote. Austria? Well then, good day, mate. Let's put another shrimp on the barbie. These were spoken by Harry Dunn and Lloyd Christmas, and uh, these are also the main characters of the cinematic masterpiece, Dumb and Dumber. Um, The movie is about two idiots who just go about doing whatever they do. They say stupid things, they do dumb things, and much to the amusement of the viewer, um, we get to see them pull off their hijinks, and it's entertaining. Uh, This is fictional. Uh, something that is a myth in history. Um, whether or not this is true, uh, it's up for debate by historians. But there was the emperor of Rome. His name was Caligula. And Caligula was known as a strange emperor, um, pretty, a pretty bad emperor of Rome. And there was one time, according to myth, he got angry at the sea. He got angry at the ocean. So he declared war on Poseidon, the god of the sea. He had his men go into the water, thrash about. He had his men throw spears into the water to attack the sea. And then he had them collect seashells as spoils of war to bring home. 
Caligula, Harry Dunn, and Lloyd Christmas. These are men that we would call fools. What is a fool? A fool is someone who is ignorant of reality, someone who lacks awareness, someone who doesn't have a proper understanding of things happening around them. They have, an, they have unrealistic expectations. They overestimate their own intellect and abilities. These are fools. You might know fools. You might know people who you would not consider intelligent, bright, with it. And if these fictional men, well, Caligula was a real emperor, but if these men are fools, then what is foolishness? Foolishness is the mindset of ignorance and of stupidity and its insensible thinking. And this is the idea that's put before us today as we look at the text in 1 Corinthians. This idea of foolishness in the context of the gospel message. A few weeks ago, we began our series in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at the first two chapters, um, the past few weeks and in the coming weeks. And these chapters, they help us gain an understanding of what the church should be like. What should be the focus of the church? When we began the series a few weeks ago, we began with Paul greeting the Corinthian church. He, ad- he identified them as those who are saints, who have been called as the people of God, called together. God has put them together with a purpose, with intentionality. And then Paul, he expresses his, dis- his dismay at the lack of unity in the church. Even though you are saints, even though you are called together, despite your shared identity, you have division in the church. There's nothing holding you together, it seems. The Corinthian church was situated in the city of Corinth, which was situated along a busy trade route, meaning that all types of people converged here in in Corinth. People of different cultures, of different ethnicities, of different socioeconomic levels, worldviews, religious backgrounds. And the believers, they converged in the Corinthian church. And the tendency of everyone here was to think of themselves in terms of who they were as individuals, instead of who they are as a church. So then what is the solution for the Corinthian church? This week and in the coming weeks, we'll look at the argument that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians. And he says this, he says that it's the cross that should shape the thinking of the church. It should be the cross of Jesus that defines the identity and the message and the mission of the church. And between today's passage and the end of chapter 2, we'll see how the Corinthian church should have a radically different perspective on everything because of the cross. Not just the Corinthian church, but our church as well. As we think about what IGC should be, what should we focus on, what should define the things that we do. And today we look at verses 17 and 21, and my hope for us today is that we would rethink the lenses by which we evaluate the world, by which we evaluate ourselves, and what we care about as a church. And next week we're going to look at the same passage, the same verses again, but we'll also include all the verses leading up to verse 25. Today we look at these verses 17 through 21. And as we dig into the text, I want us to be reminded of what the cross actually meant in the context of the first century world. So here is the Greco-Roman world. The hearers are the Corinthian church. And we need to think of the cross as not something um, benign, not as something commonplace. 
It should be something that is uncomfortable and distasteful, this idea of the cross. The cross is an instrument of torture. It's a way to humiliate the victim. I went on Google a few days ago as I was preparing for this message, and I looked up, I just Googled um, instruments of torture. And in the medieval days, uh, it was kind of an art form, how you tortured people. And there are countless devices that people came up with back in the day. And here are just a few of the, the tamer ones. Um, I wasn't sure who, if there'd be any kids in the audience, so I can't share uh, the more gruesome ones. But here are some of the more, um, I wouldn't say they are uh, gentle, but they're more, uh, they're more tame compared to the other torture devices. Uh, one of them is the heretic's fork. And this was a torture device that gained popularity during the Spanish Inquisition. And what it was, was a collar that was put around someone's neck. And there were two prongs, sharpened prongs, that were stuck right up against your jaw. And the point was to make you so exhausted that you couldn't help but lay your head on the prong. And it would pierce your skin. And if you even spoke, it would pierce your skin and it would cause excruciating pain. This was called the heretic's fork. There was another torture device called the pillory. And this was... Uh, not so much a torture device as it was a humiliation device. The victims had their he- heads and hands placed in wooden stocks, and they were placed in the center of this town. And everyone that saw them could humiliate them. They could throw whatever they want at the victims. And for hours and hours, these victims were humiliated in front of people. So here are some of the more tame torture devices, the heretic's fork and the pillory. Right down the street from us, we have three crosses, the church, um, the church and also the cafe. If you drive by it on Castro Valley Boulevard or if you drive by on 580, what do you see? You see three big crosses high up in the sky. It's a part of our city. And we probably don't think much of it because we see it all the time. Now imagine if it was a heretic's fork or imagine that it was a pillory. Three heretic's forks high up in the sky or three pillories with people locked in them for everyone to look at. What if that were a part of Castro Valley that we saw every day? That would be weird. That would be offensive and distasteful. And this is what the cross is. It's distasteful and offensive and upsetting. The cross is an instrument of torture and humiliation. Do we forget that sometimes? Friedrich Nietzsche, a uh, philosopher and perhaps one of the most well-known critics of Christianity in modern times, wrote this about the cross. This is what he says. Modern men, obtuse to all of Christian nomenclature, no longer feel the gruesome superlative that struck a classical taste in the paradoxical formula, God on the cross. Never yet and nowhere has there been an equal boldness in inversion, anything as horrible, questioning, and questionable as this formula. It promised a revaluation, re-evaluation of all the values of antiquity. And here are a lot of uh, words and phrases that we don't use in modern language. But here is Frederick Nietzsche saying this. He's saying that we have become so used to the idea of the cross. We've become numb to it. 
we don't appreciate how offensive the cross was to the original hearers. And in order for us to feel the weight of today's passage, we need to understand how scandalous the cross was back then in the first century. And we're going to talk about it more next week. Um, I'll, I'll give more examples from history of people and their evaluation of the cross. We'll look at it next week as we look at the following verses. But let me remind us if we've forgotten basically what the cross is at its foundation. What is the cross? The first thing I want to say is this, that the cross was not depicted in art until the 4th century. And that's when Constantine outlawed the practice. And it wasn't until the 9th century that crosses began to sh- began showing up in churches. 900 years after the church began, that's when the cross began showing up in churches. Is that not strange? And it's not because people forgot it wasn't until people forgot how gory and violent and horrific the cross was that it became a commonplace image. The cross was a form of torture and public shaming reserved for the worst of the criminals and offenders. So when Paul reminds the Corinthians of the cross, there must have been something in the hearers that recoiled. They must have said something in them that said, Paul, how can you write about something so frequently? How can you put that image in our minds? We need to remember how scandalous the cross was to the original hearers. Once you were placed on the cross, there was no chance of you coming off of it alive. You didn't die until you first experienced excruciating pain. And in fact, the word excruciating is where the the root word is crux. This is the Latin word for cross. The cross defines what excruciating is. The cross is an instrument of pain and death. And like I mentioned earlier, it's also an instrument of shame. The victims were stripped naked and their flesh was torn open by the nails that were fastened that fastened them to the cross. The victims on the cross were lifted up for hundreds and perhaps thousands of people to see. It wasn't uncommon for victims to completely lose control of their bodily functions. Urine and feces would drip down their legs. If you were on the cross, every bit of dignity you had as a human being was completely stripped from you. When you think of the cross, think of suffering and wailing, ridicule and shame. And it's difficult for us to understand how grotesque and how stomach-churning it really was. Because nowadays, we don't see anything like that. Unless you go up on the internet and you look up whatever terrible things are on there. This is the cross. This is the message of the cross, Paul says in our text. And Paul says the word of the cross, this is foolishness to the world. This is why the hearers of the gospel, when they first heard it, It was strange and offensive and foolish to them. And Paul says, think of the cross. Put your mind on it. And when you do, this is what you should realize. That the cross divides humanity into two categories. It stands in opposition to the prevailing thinking of the world And what are the two categories, Paul says? There are those who are perishing. Um, Another translation to the ESV, which we use in this church, it says that those who are on their way to destruction, 
These are the people that find the message, the word of the cross, foolish. But then there's another category, those who are being saved. These are the people who find the word of the cross beautiful and attractive and compelling. And your reaction to the word of the cross lets you know which category you belong to. Um, Let me just clarify. This is not your reaction to your perception of the church or to Christianity. So many people confuse the message of the gospel with what they see in the church or what they see of Christians. And what do they see of Christians? They see hypocrisy. They see Christians making a big deal about things that they care about, things that are not central to the Christian message. What offends them is, what should offend people who listen to the message of the church is the cross. Not your stance on whatever political thing, political message of the day is, or anything surrounding that. What is the message? What is the word of the cross? And it's this. This is the gospel. Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? It is the power of God. And here Paul says, this is the power of God. This is the message that is foolish to the world. That God created man and woman in his image to have fellowship with him. But we went our own way and we chose our own way of life. This is called sin. And the consequence is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. And Paul says, this is the message. That our attempts to solve this problem of death or our attempts to distract us or, or to delay this death. We have lots of these ways. We pursue pleasure and comfort and youthfulness. We pursue the American dream. We pursue religion or we act as good citizens. We engage in good behavior. We have academic or professional achievements. We raise decent families. And these are all ways that we try to distract ourselves. These are all ways that we try to delay the inevitable death that is coming for us if we are sinners. And this is all of us. This is the message of the cross, but this is not the end of the message of the cross. God, in his loving kindness and wisdom, he makes a way of escape. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we could not live and die the death on the cross. This is the word of the cross. God does not send a military leader or politician to fix our problems. He does not send someone to exert brute strength and force. But he sends a baby. He sends a baby in frailty and weakness. And then after he lived the perfect life that I spoke of, he died a horrific death. He was abandoned by all his followers. He was stripped of all his dignity, tortured on the cross. And then he died. And Paul says, this is foolishness to the world. This should not make sense. That God, the God of the universe, would save and deliver his people in these manners. And yet this is what God did. This is the power of God, Paul says. And what does the cross do if we understand it? It it turns our understanding of power on its head. What is power? What is our understanding of strength? It's forcefulness and assertion. It's intelligence and clout. These are the things that we care about as 
a culture and in a society. And Paul says, the cross is none of these things. The cross is the infinitely powerful God condescending, dying the worst death possible. And this is a way in which he will save his people. God's power is the opposite of the power of the world. So Paul continues on in the text. Look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Sammy led us in the call to worship earlier and this call to worship passage came from Isaiah 29. Let me read you the passage in context. Isaiah 29 verses 13 through 16. And um, I don't have, we don't have it on the screen. Um, just listen along. And the Lord said, Isaiah, the prophet writing, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are in the dark, who say, who sees us, who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed of him who formed, or, or the... Or the thing say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Um, you can look at this passage when you get home later. Isaiah 29, verses 13 through 16. This is God speaking to his people, the Israelites. And the Israelites, they are in trouble because what they hear is that the Assyrians, their, their enemies, are coming to destroy them. So the Israelites, they make a treaty with their also enemies, with the Egyptians, And they say to the Egyptians, let's fight together. Let's fight the enemy together. These are the ways in which we will protect ourselves. These are the ways in which we will find deliverance. This is the context of this passage in Isaiah 29, your call to worship. The plan of the Israelites to deliver themselves from the enemies. But what do they do? They make plans without consulting God. They do things in darkness. They make plans in secret. They make plans that are contrary to what God wants of them. They're contrary to God's plans and His timing. And the wise that Isaiah writes of in his book are most likely the advisors to the king who have set themselves up as gods. They, they ask these questions of God. They say, or they, they say to God, He did not make me. He has no understanding. They are putting themselves in the place of God because... They don't think that God is wise. They don't think that God is powerful. Therefore, they have to come up with plans on their own. And the word of the cross in 1 Corinthians is the fulfillment of Isaiah 29. This is why Paul includes it in 1 Corinthians. That God has declared his intention to destroy the wisdom of the wise. We all have plans to figure out how to fix the problems in our lives, don't we? The Israelites had their plans. We're going to make a treaty with the Egyptians. But what does God do? If we look at history, we see that Israel, the Assyrians, they find out that the Israelites made a plan with the Egyptians. And this causes them to attack earlier than they originally planned. 
and the Israelites were destroyed. The Israelites' plan to defend themselves and protect themselves backfired because they thought that they were smart. They thought that they were wise. And the same is true of us. The manner and the means to our understanding of the flourishing life are often in in opposition to the plans that God has for us. Our plans are in direct conflict with the plans of God. We think we know, we think we get it, we think we have things under our control. We think that we can rely on our own wits and instincts and resources. And whether or not we're aware of it, we have this tendency to always question God. We always question God. This was what we've seen in Genesis, the fall of man, if you remember. What did the serpent do? He caused Adam and Eve to question what God said. At the foundation of our sinfulness is this tendency to question God. In the religious context, there is syncretism. Syncretism was a big thing in the Old Testament. The combination of worship of Yahweh with the worship of other gods. Today we see it as the picking and choosing of what we like from the buffet of religions. Maybe we like the idea of Jesus, but we pull in other worldviews and ideas. This is in churches, picking and choosing what we want to communicate. How many of the biggest churches in America will regularly speak of repentance and judgment and eternal torment in hell and God's wrath and God's anger towards sinners and his demands for holiness? There are some big churches that do that and thank God for them. But listen to the podcast of the most popular churches in America and count how many times they'll mention that God will send you to hell if you're a sinner. So what do we do? We cut these ideas out. In some circles, for us more recently, it's Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism. This is the marriage of Christianity with political power. It's mixing up the name of Jesus with the name of politicians or political parties. And this is disgusting and it's satanic. In our own lives, it's called pride. Thinking that you know better than God. Choosing to live as if your own life and your own comfort and your own preferences is more important than the glory of God. So Paul continues on in the passage. His assertion is that the word of the cross is folly to the world. This is why there's such a thing as syncretism and compromised churches and pride. But it's the power of God to those who belong to him. And Paul says in the passage, God will destroy the wisdom of the wise. He does not leave room for the wisdom of man There is no room for compromise when it comes to the word of the cross. God invites all the rivals of God's word to stand up. And then he asks this question, verse 20. Where where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? These are the people. These are the, the parties and institutions and people that people look to. The messengers. 
And Paul says there are three ways in which we try to play God in our own lives. And let me just go through these uh, quickly. There are the wise. In the first century Corinth, there were the Stoics, those who believed in temperament and self-control and responsibility. And Stoicism is actually a pretty popular thing nowadays. If you listen to some of the podcasts, um, it's it's enjoyed a resurgence amongst especially the uh, millennials nowadays, the Epicureans. Paul is... um, has in mind as he writes to the Corinthians. These are those who taught that it wasn't possible to know if there was an afterlife. Therefore, you should enjoy as much of your life now as you can. This is called, in our day, hedonism. There were the Platonists who believed in ethics and living a virtuous life because they believed in some sort of transcendent reality, but the reality was disembodied and impersonal. And the philosophers who designed these systems of thoughts they, they, they try to explain the world and reality. They defined, they had defined organizing principles of understanding the world. They had a worldview, this is what we call it. And these voices, they pro- promoted a type of wisdom that was about self-expression and self-advancement and being more and being enough. You are enough. And this is vastly different from biblical wisdom, which is concerned with proper living before God. Who are those who are wise in our day? Look at the New York Times bestseller list or the most popular podcasts. Paul says, he asks another question, where is the scribe? Who then is the scribe? These, in the first, in the first century church, these were the experts on the law or the academics or the scholars. Paul is referring to the Jewish, Jewish scribes of the day. They spent their time studying the law and the Torah and people looked to them for, the, for answers on how to best approach life Um, these are the scribes and Paul has in mind there are folks on both sides of the spectrum there are the moralists and the humanists these scribes are more than just the Jewish scribes he has in mind but they embody a type of thinking that says that we can figure life out those who live the moral life the peddlers of religion who promise salvation by adherence to a set of rules or principles. They say that if you live a certain way, if you obey a certain law, then you will live a blessed life. If you blindly obey these rules. This is taught in churches. And you might have grown up in a church like this where you were taught, if I live a certain way, if I act a certain way, then my life will be good. And then there are, on the other end, secular humanists, those who view religion as harmful and evil. Christopher Hitchens was a uh, well-known opponent of the Christian faith before he passed away. Um, This is what he writes about the Christian faith. Heaven watches this with complete indifference. And then 2,000 years ago, thinks, that's enough of that. It's time to intervene. This is him talking about the Christian idea that God has intervened in history. And the best way to do this would be by condemning someone to a human sacrifice somewhere in the less literate parts of the Middle East. Let's go to the desert and have another revelation there. This is nonsense and it can't be believed by a thinking person. And he continues on. Why am I glad this is the case? To get to the point of the wrongness of Christianity. Because I think the teachings of Christianity are immoral. The central one is the most immoral of all. And that is the one of vicarious redemption. This is the word of the cross, by the way. 
The central one is the most immoral of all, he says. You can throw your sins onto somebody else, vulgarly known as scapegoating. In fact, originating as scapegoating in the same area, the same desert. I can pay your debt if I love you. I can serve your prison term if I love you very much. I can volunteer to do that. I can't take your sins away because I can't abolish your responsibility, and I shouldn't offer to do so. Your responsibility has to stay with you. There is no vicarious redemption. There very probably, in fact, is no redemption at all. It's just a part of wish thinking. Here is Christopher Hitchens. It's a very well-known, very educated, very intelligent scholar. And he says the Christian faith is ridiculous. How can you people believe that you can put your sins on another person? In order to believe that, he says, you have to be unintelligent. Because who were the adherents of the Christian faith in the early day? They were the poor. They were the illiterate in the desert. And then there is the debater, Paul asks, this this third category. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. This was in a culture that valued rhetoric. The the, The Corinthians, they idolized those who could influence people by their persuasive powers. And when Paul refers to the debaters, he's bringing to the mind the great speakers of the Corinthian culture. People knew the famous orators, those who could really get your attention by the way that you spoke, by the way you built your arguments, those who could argue you into a corner, those who could speak well and with articulation and express their ideas well. The closest thing we have to that nowadays are those who have a platform and an audience. Think of the entertainers, the socially savvy, the podcasters, the TikTokers, the commentators, the talking heads. We have orders, we have debaters in this day and age as well. And we don't even know that they're teaching us often. If you watch any of the comedy specials on Netflix, Almost every single one is either underhandedly or blatantly trying to convince you that their worldview is the right one. Listen to Dave Chappelle or Bill Burr or Tig Nataro or Taylor Tomlinson. Um, These are some of the more well-known ones if you look on YouTube even. Um, Listen to their acts and tell me that they don't have a worldview. They do. They're communicating something of what the world should be like and how we should live through their comedy. And I'm not saying that their point of view is wrong or right. I'm just saying that these people matter in our society because we look up to them, because we value what they have to say, because we're willing to listen to them. These are the debaters of our day. These are the messengers, the wise, the experts, the talking heads that grab our attention. They tell us how to live. And more often than not, it's a message of self Expression and self-sufficiency and freedom. You have the power to live life however you want. You have the resources to fix whatever problems you have. You are enough. Don't let anyone tell you how to live your life. And this is what the Corinthians were hearing. And then comes along this man, Jesus Christ, who captures a people And he speaks to them and he loves them. And he dies a death on their behalf. And from this man, Jesus Christ, comes a small sect called the Christians. 
and the Christians were not respected at all when they first began. They were ridiculed. They had no political power. They had no platform. They had, for the most part, no skill in communicating their message. But what did they have? They had the message. They had the word of the cross. The message of an all-powerful, all-knowing, transcendent God who humbled himself to become man. Not a man who possessed power or might or clout. He came, like Christopher Hitchens, the atheist says, from a small region of no repute. Jesus had no home. He had no bankroll. He preached a message of repentance and the kingdom of heaven. And somehow he was able to capture them. And the people he captured were what? They were losers. They were people that no one else wanted to associate with. And in a few weeks we'll talk about this more in chapter 2 of First Corinthians. And he entrusted his mission to nobody, nobodies. And this is the word of the cross for us. Paul continues on in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What are the implications for us today? There are implications for us as individuals. And this is what we need to hear. That we need to repent of our our, our attempts to solve our own sin problem. We need to repent of our attempts to make things right in our own lives. We need to repent of our attempts to appease God. Because when we do that, when we try to do things on our own, that is the wisdom of men. That is not the power of God. The power of God will always make a fool of those who try to live by their own strength. Because the gospel message is this. You do not have it in yourself. You do not have it in yourself to fix things. You cannot know God through your own intellect or your own education. The Spirit of God has to do something. And this is something we'll talk again about in chapter 2. What brings pleasure to God Verse 21 says, It pleases God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It brings pleasure to God. It makes God smile upon this church. If you can say, I will not depend on myself anymore. I will not try to save myself. Instead, I will look to Jesus. I will worship this man So this is what we need to do as individuals, repent of our attempts to fix things on our own. And instead we look to Christ and we say, I've got nothing. I've got nothing before you, God. In fact, I owe you everything and I can't pay you back one bit. I'm desperate for you. You need to save me. And then there is also an implication for our church today. Indelible Grace Church in this season of our ministry. What's going to pull us together? What's going to unite us as a church? It's the gospel of Christ. It's the word of the cross. And this is what we have to communicate every single week. 
This is what your life has to be built on. The gospel of Christ. We have to preach this. And there are a lot of things we should talk about. We should talk about social justice. We should talk about the things happening in culture and society today. We should talk about ways we can live a better life. We should talk about how to be better fill in the blank. Employee or spouse or children or friend. These are all good and important things. But central to everything is this idea of the cross, not just an idea, but the word of the cross, the gospel of Christ. This is the power of God. This is a power that's going to shape us as a church if we will submit to what God is doing. This is the power that will shape us into a church that pleases God. And I've said this in the past, and I'll say it again. I hope we have no interest in building a big church or an influential church. We just want to be a faithful church that preaches the gospel, that lives under this message of the gospel, that submits to the spirit of God, that worships Jesus in spirit and in truth. And if we can do that, I think we're doing okay. I think we're doing okay. I think it's okay if we don't have power. I think it's okay if we don't have influence. I think it's okay if we can never get to whatever size church you have in mind. As long as we're faithful to the word of the cross, then God will be honored. Will you pray with me? Uh, Father, we, um, we repent of our foolishness. Our foolishness in thinking that we can earn our way to you. Our foolishness in thinking that we can make things right. But the word of the cross is your power, and we submit to that. And if the world thinks it's stupid, then so be it. If we're mocked and jeered because of the gospel, then so be it, as long as you're honored. God, make this true of our church, that the word of the cross would be to us something beautiful and good, something that we are always sitting under and pursuing and listening to. And may we respond in worship because of it. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who died on the cross for us. Amen.